Well, we begin every Sunday with the words of um, loving God and loving your neighbors. We, we said that earlier before our worship service. God has, uh, Jesus has told us, you know, what is the greatest commandment? To love God. And then the second is like it, to love our neighbors. Uh, but what does that really look like, right? What does, what does love really look like? What does love in the flesh look like? What does loving the person who lives with you, the person who perhaps is in your Zoom classroom or maybe your physical classroom now, the person who you see at the dog park or maybe at the groceries at Trader Joe's or, or Starbucks, if you're uh, so brave and you have re-entered, what does loving them look like? And so today we're going to be looking at a brand new series entitled Love Walked Among Us. And it's examining the life of Christ and what his life can teach us about loving people. Because Jesus is God's love in human flesh, interacting with us, his creation, and loving us, his creation. So I want to begin by asking this question, have you ever had an encounter with a person? Maybe it's a stranger, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member, coworker, classmate, whatever. And you left that encounter thinking, wow, that was really, really great. I, I really feel seen and I, I really feel heard. And, and then it hits you, you really felt loved. And then maybe you have some other encounters. encounters. The encounters, uh, maybe they're meant to be helpful or maybe they're meant to be encouraging. And it's not that you weren't loved, but you just felt like uh, you were another to do or you're another checklist number. Maybe they were helpful, but it didn't leave you feeling really cherished or really loved. And perhaps you wonder, what was the difference? What makes one encounter loving and the other encounter makes you feel a little empty? And what we'll be looking at is this. How does Jesus love people? How does he model love for us? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at one a passage in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. But before we get there, as perhaps as you're turning there, let me give you a quick recap. Jesus is this up-and-coming rabbi teacher. He's preaching to the masses. And in fact, he had just finished a healing of a, a centurion's servant. And in fact, you know, this is so relevant. It was a remote healing. He didn't even have to be in person. He could do it uh, from a distance. That's how spectacular his miracle was. He was so powerful, he didn't actually have to physically touch the person as all the ancient prophets did. Uh, he was just, he just simply healed him uh, from a distance, remote healing. And, uh, and of course, as he is performing all of these miracles, right? People are coming up to him and he's starting to get a crowd. Now, some of the crowd, they were his disciples. That means they were dedicated followers. Others were, were curious seekers while others were trying to figure out how to get Jesus to do what they wanted him to do. Regardless of their intent, a great crowd starts following Jesus. So turn with me to Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, Jesus is walking from Capernaum, where he healed the centurion's servant. 
and he reaches this small town called Nain. It's about a day's journey. It's about 25, 30 miles away. And they're able to walk from one city to the next in about a day. So perhaps by the time he gets to the city, it's close to evening or late afternoon. And Jesus is approaching this town. I would imagine after a long day's journey, Jesus was probably looking for a place to rest, to lay his head, to, to kick up his feet so to speak. Now, Nain is not a particularly significant town. In fact, it's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. It, it's only claim to fame, if you could even say that, is its name. Nain means beautiful or pleasant. And at one time, perhaps Nain was a prosperous town. It had these dramatic views and the green pastures. But on this day, it was anything but beautiful or pleasant. As Jesus approaches this town, scripture tells us there is a great crowd that's with him. And, and that's not unusual for a rising superstar rabbi like Jesus. But what was unusual was there was another crowd at the city where he was headed towards. But this one was not here for Jesus. This one was being led by a dead young man. Immediately following this dead man was his mother, Luke tells us, a widow. Now, Luke doesn't tell us the size of the crowd. He does say it's considerable. He doesn't tell us much about how they're mourning. But we know that the ancient Jewish custom uh, for funeral processions is that it would been, have been filled with professional mourners. These are people who are hired to cry at funerals. They would wail and they would cry just to show uh, how important how, and what a great loss uh, whoever had passed away was. And even if you were poor, even for the poorest of Jews, uh, we have written records that there would be flutes and cymbals, and the community would come out to express their collective grief. And even for a widow, such as this one here, she would have had a few mourners wailing on her behalf, and the whole town seemed to have come out and joined them. Luke also gives us uh, some more additional details. This was the only son of the mother. And in ancient Israel, as with many ancient cultures, the son took care of the family. The son had the responsibility of caring for their parents as they grew older. And that responsibility would be passed from eldest to youngest. And children in those days was a form of retirement, of social security. It was a safety net. The family really took care of the older generation. But Luke tells us that this was her only son. Her entire nest egg was crushed and lying on this funeral bier, losing a son, right? That, that's a tragedy for anyone. But losing an only son for a widow, right? This is beyond imaginable. Not only was there, uh, Luke tells us that she's a widow, not only did she have to grieve the loss of her husband, we don't know uh, how long ago the husband died, but we know that she does not have a husband who is typically the provider and the caretaker of the house. But now her son, who was supposed to assume that mantle, was now gone. All of her hopes and all of her dreams, all of her security and her future rested for this Widow, there was no more safety net. There's no Medicare, no social security. In the blink of an eye, this widow was all on her own. And this picture that Luke paints for us 
It's so jarring. It's such a contrast. In the midst of a noisy crowd of considerable size, of wailing and weeping and clanging gongs, you have a picture of this widow who is all alone with only the silence in her heart and in her home to fill the rest of her days. Now, before we go any further, I want us to take some time and identify with this widow and her grief. In many ways, this widow represents so many of us. We go through life publicly, but perhaps there's this private pain or private grief, or private sorrow that we bear that no one else sees. Maybe for some of us, it is the loss of a loved one. Maybe for some of us, it's the loss of a relationship, whether it's estranged or physically distant. Maybe it's the loss of a dream. It's the loss of hopes that we've had. Maybe for some of you, it's college rejections. And you know, these are real grief. These are real pain. For all of us, this past year has been filled with all sorts of loss. For some of you who are about to graduate high school, this was supposed to be your year. This was your year to enjoy your final year of high school, hanging out with your friends, going on senior trips. For those of you with family abroad, traditions that have been kept for generations, for decades, perhaps have been skipped for the very first time. For those of you who are single, perhaps the pain and the loneliness of singleness has pierced your soul in ways that you never quite realized before. And the truth is, we've all endured some type of loss this year, and we've all endured some type of pain. You'll get over it. You'll forget about it. You might. But the truth is, the pain is still there. Sometimes it's hidden in plain sight. Or they might say, but at least you made it through. Right? At least you got vaccinated, which is also true. But that pain of loss is still there, isn't it? Sometimes we, we cover up the pain. We say, well, it's okay. I'll get through this. It's, it's water off a duck's back. But truth be told, we carry these scars with us wherever we go. And sometimes we think we're helping others because we don't want to burden them and we don't tell them about our pain. So we have a stiff upper lip. We ignore the pain. We ignore the hurts. But perhaps we're shit. We ignore the pain and the hurts of others. You know, we know that God calls us to love others. But sometimes we come up with reasons not to, or we have ready excuses. And what are some of the excuses that you have for not loving people? Maybe for some of us, we're tired, right? Maybe we've been on a long journey, literally or metaphorically. We're, we're experiencing Zoom fatigue or, you know, it's just, it's just been so emotionally, mentally draining for us during this time. Perhaps we have a lot going on in our lives. There's a lot on our plates and we're tired too. You know, I, I think it would have been very reasonable had Jesus and his crowd simply stepped aside respectfully and allowed the mourners to pass. No one would have faulted him. Maybe another excuse is we don't know what to say or what to do. And the easier thing is simply to avoid eye contact. Because once you make eye contact, you feel obligated to bring it up. And it's awkward. Or maybe we fear that if we bring it up, it will only cause more pain to the other person. And we say to ourselves, well, let's just let sleeping dogs lie. 
And there's a, a lot of different ways to respond to how people are suffering or when people are hurt. But I want us to notice how Jesus responds to this woman and how he loves her. We see in verse 13, uh, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. Notice how Jesus responds. Luke tells us the first thing that we see here is God sees us. God loves us by seeing us. Now, there's a difference between seeing a person and seeing a person, right? Jesus saw her not just with his eyes. He perceived her pain, her hurt, her suffering. He felt her suffering. He, he didn't glance at her and turn his eyes away. He didn't respectfully let her pass by. He really saw her. All of the heartache that she was going through. That's what it means to see a person. A few months ago, we went through a series on the names of God. And one of the names of God is El-Rohi, the God who sees. The God who saw the Israelites suffering under the harsh rule of Pharaoh. The God who saw the, the servant girl Hagar mistreated. The God who saw the unwanted son, Ishmael, tossed aside and kicked out of the house. The God who sees the widow alone in her grief as the world is crumbling all around her. Because that's who God is. And that's what God does. He sees you. He really sees you. You don't need to hide your pain. You don't need to hide your grief from him. He sees you in your deepest sorrows, in your times of rejection, your moments of loneliness. When the world comes crashing down on you, God loves you by seeing you in all of your brokenness, in all of your hurt, in all of your pain. And friends, you need to remember that God loves you by seeing you. But I also believe that God wants us to love others in the same way. It begins by recognizing the inherent worth and dignity of each person. Going all the way back to Genesis, God tells us that he created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And every single person that we come across, whether it's a widow who is marginalized, a minority who is violently attacked, a child who has been separated from their family, a homeless man on the side of the road, God has created them unique and special. And each one of them carries within them his image. And by that very fact, they are worth seeing, not, not just with their eyes, but to, to really see them. God loves us by seeing us. We love others by seeing them. Who does God want you to stop and see today? Who does God want you to stop what you're doing, interrupt your life, and recognize the dignity and honor that God gives to them by seeing their world and their hurt, their loss? Maybe it is a coworker. Or maybe it is a classmate. Maybe it means pulling a person aside and say, hey, I notice you've been looking down and you've been distracted. Is, is everything okay? Asking them, how has this time been for you? And really listen. The first way that Jesus loves this woman is by seeing her, by understanding, perceiving, and feeling what they are going through. You know, Jesus doesn't stop simply at seeing. 
he also has an emotional response. We look at in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. Luke tells us when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, this word uh, compassion in English, it's really kind of a, a lame definition in, in English. It, it simply mean, means sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. It, it's almost sterile. It, it's neutered of any real meaning which Luke intended. If we look at the etymology of this word, compassion means with. With the calm and passion is the suffering. It means you're suffering with somebody. The Greek word uh, that Luke uses, and, and several times throughout scripture, it's splachnizomai, uh, which comes from uh, the Greek word for intestines. It comes from your gut because that's where the root of all your affections are. And it not only means to suffer with alongside another, it means you have a deep visceral reaction when you see and enter into somebody else's suffering, it gets you in your bowels. Have you ever witnessed something that made you sick to your stomach? It's the idea that your whole body is identifying with the one that is hurting. This past year, we witnessed some horrific things, haven't we? And maybe most recently, and maybe close, most closest to home is the violent attacks of elderly Asians throughout this nation, right? But more shocking here in the Bay Area. And if you're like me, as you watch these attacks, it, it really hits us in the gut because we can identify with those victims. They look like our mothers and our fathers, our grandmas and our grandpas, and it just makes us sick to our splunknon, our stomach, our gut. And that's the kind of sympathy Splunk Nizomai is. It's a deep, visceral, emotional response for the suffering of another. It's more than lip service. Right? This was more than a few coins tossed into a beggar's cup. There's an entire embodiment of entering into their suffering, the pain, the heartbreak of another. And the truth is, the truth is, this is very, very hard to do. It's hard to enter into another person's pain. It's hard to put yourself into their shoes and imagine what they must be going through. It's painful for you to imagine the heartache and loss that they are suffering at your own. I know it's hard, but here's the truth about the gospel. Jesus does this. Jesus enters my world and he enters your world. And he suffers in all the ways that we suffer. He knows the pain of loss. He knows the pain of betrayal. He knows the pain of rejection and accusation. He knows the pain of death. But God loves us by entering into our suffering. And he comforts us through these things. And Paul reminds us, now that Christ has comforted us in all of our pain, in all of our suffering, so can you comfort others in the same way? Paul writes to the church in 2 uh, Corinthians 1.4. He says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, God of all comforts. And here in verse 4, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us by entering into our suffering and he gives us comfort. We comfort others, we love others by entering into their suffering 
and we share with them the comforts that we have received from Christ. So let me ask the question, how have you been comforted by God? Maybe it's through a kind word from a brother or sister. Maybe it's through the prayers of your church family members. Maybe it's through the body of Christ exercising their gifts on your behalf, showing up for you, meeting real physical needs. Now, when we love others, it requires that we enter into their suffering to understand their hurt, to understand their pains. It means using your imagination and empathy and trying to put yourself in their shoes and thinking, how can I bring the comfort that I received from God to this person? Because God loves us by entering into our suffering with compassion. Right? The second aspect of love that Jesus shows us, not only does love see the hurting, love has compassion on the hurting, and we love others by entering into their suffering with compassion too. Well, Jesus continues on and we learn a third thing that he does. Not only does he take action, not only does he see, but we also see here, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Now, this is where Jesus' compassion may differ from what we describe as compassion. Compassion for Jesus is always accompanied by action. It is never a feeling that is stillborn in the body. It's never a thought that flees away. Compassion is birthed and it comes out as action. We learn that God loves us, not only by seeing us, not only by having compassion and entering into our suffering, but God loves us by taking action. Jesus takes action first by acknowledging her and speaking to her. He's saying, do not weep, stop weeping, stop crying. Right? He doesn't just say, oh, go ahead, walk on by, we'll wait. <clears throat> but he actually talks to her. Now, it's kind of interesting phrase. I, I was kind of wrestling with this. Why does Jesus tell this woman uh, not to cry? It, it seems a little anti-intuitive, right? Uh, because we tell people to stop crying uh, because maybe there's no point in crying over spilt milk. You might have heard the phrase. Or other times we tell people, oh, don't cry because crying does no good. Or maybe we tell people, don't cry because it makes other people feel uncomfortable. But, you know, psychologists have told us that through crying, right, it's a natural response to an event, whether it's something happy or sad, whether it's something joyful or tragic. In fact, scientists have studied tears and discovered that our bodies produce different types of tears. Tears that lubricate the eyes and tears from allergies, tears from onions, tears from laughter, tears from sadness and grief. They all look different, but they're also chemically different. When you tear up because your eyes are dry, those tears are 98% water. But when you have tears because of sadness or grief, right? When you're weeping because your only son has died and you have no one else left in this world, scientists tell us that those tears contain stress hormones and toxins. And it, what, what your body is doing is it's trying to release all these stress hormones and, and toxins and as, uh, help your body cleanse them from your, uh, from your body. Other studies have shown that when you cry, it's actually more effective at improving your mood than taking antidepressants sometimes. And all this to say, crying is a normal part of the human response to something so tragic, something so heartbreaking as losing your only child. So why does Jesus, of all people, right? We, we think of Jesus as like the most emotionally uh, 
wise and mature person, why does he tell her not to cry? Right? Is he a stoic? Is he suppressing emotions? If crying is a natural reaction to our reality, why does Jesus say stop crying? Now, what I believe Jesus is doing here is he is saying, I know you're sad, woman. Your son has just died. Your husband has passed away. You're all in this, you're all alone in this world, right? I know this is your reality, but I'm going to change your reality, woman. I'm going to enter into your world. I'm going to enter into your pain. I'm going to enter into your brokenness where people die and people get buried, but I'm going to give you a new reality. A reality where there will be no more tears and there will be no more sadness. A reality where grief and sorrow will have no place. So weep no more, cry no more. And with that, he goes up and he touches the beer. A beer is basically a platform holding the body. It could be an open casket or it could be uh, just kind of a sled where uh, the body of the deceased would be washed and then wrapped. And they would be carried out to the tomb. But when Jesus stops and talks to her, and then when he goes and he touches this beer, that would have shocked everyone who was there. Because in Jewish custom, anything dealing with death or anything dealing with the dead, they were all unclean things. There's very few things uh, in, in, in Jewish custom that was worse than touching a dead body. To touch a, a dead body or even the frame holding a dead body would require a seven-day process of purification. Now, just think about that. That means you are separated from society and you can do nothing else. You're just cleansing yourself. That would mean Jesus couldn't teach. That would mean Jesus uh, couldn't heal. That would mean Jesus couldn't disciple uh, the people following him. It would be a major inconvenience, a distraction from his ministry, not to mention it would violate all of the traditions and customs that he grew up in and cause some of his followers to question whether or not he really understood the law. But Jesus doesn't let custom or tradition, inconvenience or loss of reputation stop him from exercising compassion for this widow. He touches this beer. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And immediately the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus returns the boy to his mother. Just like that, Jesus turns the widow's world back right side up. With his words, he brings healing and wholeness that only he can bring. Jesus loves this widow, not only by seeing her, not only by having compassion entering into her suffering, but he acts, he speaks with her. And he shows this widow love like only he can by bringing her dead son to life and changing her reality. Now, I don't know if you will ever have the opportunity to witness someone raised from the dead. I used to think that'd be so cool, right? If I could raise people from the dead, if I could heal people, even I don't even have to raise dead people. If I could heal people, man, like how many people will come to know the Lord, right? People would become would come flocking. How awesome would that be? I'd be bigger than Billy Graham. And then I read about Simon the sorcerer in Acts who sees Peter and John doing these miracles and he begs them to have this power. And this is what, this is kind of funny uh, passage, but he begs them to say, please give me this. I'll, I'll pay you for it. And this is how they respond. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. 
repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that in, in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness. Uh, in, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I realized when I wanted to heal people and when I wanted to raise people from the dead, I realized that my heart wanted it, not because I love people. My heart wanted it uh, for my own thing and my own recognition. And that's never the motivation for love. We may never be able to bring someone from the dead or we may never even get to witness that. But what we can do is we can bring the presence and the comfort of Christ to someone. We can offer to pray for someone and we can offer to pray with someone. And sometimes we think, well, what good does prayer do? Right? Like it's just words. But we have to remember, we are praying to the one who has the power to raise the dead. Right? When you ask, what good does prayer do? It's not you who has the power. It's the one we're praying to. And the one who is able to raise the widow's dead son is the one who's able to answer your prayers. We can bring an appropriate hug or meet a practical need. And sometimes that's all that is needed. It's an appropriate touch or maybe a practical need. We, not, we might not be able to write everything that is wrong in the world, but we can offer a bit of Christ in the midst of it. Right? We love others by bringing Christ's comfort to them. And we think, how has Christ comforted me? How can I bring comfort to them? Right? And this is also hard work. This requires seeing people, people who may be hurting, people who may be suffering, people who may be lonely. Maybe on the outside, everything is calm. But when we really see people, we realize there's so much more underneath. And this also requires having compassion, empathizing, and understanding, putting yourself in their position, imagining what they must be feeling and going through their loneliness and their suffering. But this also requires imagining what they're um, going through and what might comfort them. And this might mean loving them in ways that aren't your preferred ways and allowing them to share with you what ways would be helpful for them. Because our goal isn't to foist upon them what we think is right, but to really see what is going on in their hearts and how we might bring a bit of Christ to them. Sometimes we try to comfort others by by saying, you know, look at the bright side. At least you had a son. At least you had a nice funeral. You know, I'll let you in on a secret. It's generally not that helpful, right? Affirm the pain and the loss that the person has experienced and see them, not what you think their world should be. Have compassion on them and not project on them how you think they should respond. Love them in ways that they can understand. But there's more to the story than simply uh, this widow and her son reunited. We continue reading on in verse 16 and 17. Oh, this is the wrong passage. Well, let me read it for you. In verse 16 and 17, fear seized them all and they glorify God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding companies when the people witnessed this mighty work, when they saw this dead man uh, rise up and return to his mother, what was their response? They said, there's a mighty prophet among us. 
God has visited his people. Fear gripped all of them. And here's the important part. They glorified God, right? I bet if we saw a dead person come alive, we might have a similar response. Some of us wish we could just raise the dead to life so others might believe in God. It's the greatest evangelistic truth. But here's the truth. You and I are that dead boy. You and I, who who had a heart of stone, who hated God, who wanted nothing to do with God, we were dead before God, before the love of God. You and I, who have experienced and been radically transformed by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you and I, who once hated God and rebelled against God, lived in sin and darkness, here's the truth. You and I, we've been made alive. We were the dead young man brought back to life. God's greatest act of love for you and for me is by raising us from the dead and giving us new life. And when we share that story with other people, people will glorify God too. People will recognize that there is a God capable of changing lives. There's a God who's capable of changing hearts. There's a God of, uh, who is able to right everything that is wrong in the world. It might not happen now. It might not happen in my lifetime, but it will happen one day. And sometimes, sometimes I hear people say, well, my, my testimony is so lame. I, you know, it's not as cool as someone else's. But the truth is you were a dead person and God has made you alive. People will glorify God. You know, the most loving thing that we can do for others, really, is to share that story, to share the hope of eternal life, to share the truth that there is a God who is in the business of raising the dead to life, the spiritually dead, but also the physically dead. Now, one day, we will all die. Our bodies, my body, will be buried. But for those who have put their hope, for those who have put their faith, for those who have put their trust, in Jesus Christ, we will be raised to life again. And that is the greatest gift of love that we can share with anyone. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for the story. It, it, it's more than just a story, a one-time event, but it's an expression of how you love us, not just this widow, but every single one of us. And thank you for raising the dead to life. And you still do that today. Even right now, perhaps there is someone who you are working in their hearts. And if, if someone here is responding, God, would you continue that work and bring it to completion? If that is you, I pray that you would just speak with God and, and ask God to enter your life, to forgive your sins, and you begin a new life with him. For all of us, Lord, Give us eyes to see and a heart to express compassion and hands to serve. Help us live out what you have called us to do, to love you and to love others. We pray these things in your sense name. Amen.